Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. If you love the games, we are the show for you. Each week, we share stories from athletes and people behind the scenes to help you have more fun watching the games. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? Hello. Happy Year of the Rabbit. Happy Year of the Rabbit. So what were we doing a year ago today? We were taking COVID tests. (laughs) We were taking COVID tests and stressing out. So we're coming up on the first anniversary of Beijing 2022. Mm-hmm. And we still don't have medals in the figure skating team event. And why is that? Because of doping. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're talking some doping today for sure. It is the second part of our interview with Dick Pound, the longest serving member of the IOC. Oh, we get into WADA and the creation and and just how difficult that was. So let's get right to it. Take a listen. Let's move over to doping because we love to talk about doping. But when did you first realize that doping was an issue in sport? When did you first start seeing it? Well, one of the funny things about all this, funny, is that, you know, even in 1960, when I was in Rome, there were no sport rules. That prohibited doping, and so, so everybody knew that that steroids and, and a lot of the other testosterone-based substances were being used, and it was open. Weightlifters had been using these things for for years and years and years, and it kind of filtered through into the weight events, you know, shot put, discus, hammer throw, so on. And people were quite upfront about it, and they say, oh, you know, what are you taking? Are you taking Diana Ball? How, how much do you take? And, and do you mix it with anything? Da 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 da. And, and then they traded notes and, and it was all quite open until, as it happened, at the Rome Games, a Danish cyclist in one of the road races collapsed, died, and was found to be filled with some st- ephedrine or something. I forget what the particular stimulant was. And the old boys on the IOC said, well, whoa, huff, puff, puff. You're, you're not supposed to come to the Olympics and die because you've been taking drugs. We, we better do something about that. So they formed a... Uh, a medical commission, which had a, a doping and biochemistry subcommission. And they said, all right, let's, let's find out what the athletes are taking and what the effects are. And so they put together the first list, kind of like cave drawings, you know, compared to what it is now. And then they said, okay, so from now on, we, the IOC, are going to test at Olympic Games for anything on the list. And there will be consequences if somebody's found to have, have taken it. One of the many difficulties is if you're going to sanction somebody for taking your drugs, you've got to be able to prove that they took them. And so you have to develop tests for whatever's on your list. And, and, and some of those substances were really undetectable for a number of years, even though they were on the list. And so you'd have to depend on eyewitnesses or that, that sort of thing to get, to get evidence of it. And in fact, one of the things that, that was interesting, if you, you take us back to Seoul, 
it was in, in Seoul that they finally had a test for stenozolol, which was a, an anabolic steroid that Ben Johnson was using. And so, you know, there was, it was early days. And I remember they were on some of the sheets that there, you know, question marks, different names of things, question mark, question mark, as they were trying to figure out, you know, what we're, we're looking at a, at a graph. And what, what do these various spikes mean? And what is it? Which, which ah, this, this is what, and the designer drugs that, that were used in the, in the Balco laboratory, where they would just take a standard anabolic steroid and tweak it ever so slightly, which would produce a different shape of a graph. And, and then people had to figure out what that was. And until you got your own sample of one of these things and, and could do some experiments on it to see what the outcomes would look like on a, on a graph, you didn't know what you were like. You knew something was wrong, but you didn't know what it was. So part of the, the issue is getting up to speed in terms of what's, you know, knowing what's out there. Uh, it's like you, you get some uh, cycling coach looking at, reading about EPO, a red blood cell producer, you know, used in post-cancer operation or treatment cases to build up the blood supply. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Red blood cells, more oxygen. Hmm. Maybe there's some use for this stuff in, in, in preparing athletes. And so EPO became one of the, the drugs of choice in cycling. And it, the problem was it was all done by injection. And if you've ever given blood or so on, every once in a while where, where the needle goes in, there's a big bruise. And so you couldn't be you know, out there with your short sleeves on with a big bruise, you know, where the needle went into your arm. So they're doing it between their toes. And it, it was really astonishing but that's that's the kind of lengths that some of these folks will do uh, athletes and and these are the so-called entourage and and lots of healthy young cyclists are dying the epo kind of turns the blood into sludge and their hearts just were not strong enough to pump this stuff through the uh, through the blood vessel system and they collapsed and died and cycling say oh must have had a weak heart next and, and on, on they went. So anyway, that's the the cat and mouse game that continues to this day and will continue as long as people are, are using drugs and, and, and benefiting from them. And, and then one of the things you have to do is to say, look, th th there are some some drugs on the prohibited list that actually do have a therapeutic component. And if you have a, a particular condition, you can apply to get what's, what's called a therapeutic use exemption, the so-called TUE. And that's very carefully monitored if you have that, because you will test positive if you provide a sample. And then, so is there a TUE? Yes. Can we see it? And what is it? You know, is the dosage in the TUE matched by what we found in the sample? Or did, you know, did it say take 10 milligrams of this once a week and you're taking 100 and you have, you know, the test is not consistent with what the exemption should have been. So it's an ongoing cat and mouse game. And the, and the advantage, of course, is with the perpetrator. It's like, like the bank robber. The bank robber knows which bank and what night. The police have to wait until the alarm goes off or something like that and then and try and respond very quickly. And it, it's a little bit like that in the, in the anti-doping uh, field as well. But one of the things we now do is, and you've probably seen reports of that, we, at, at the Olympic Games at least, we save the samples now for 10 years. You may get out of town with your medal, but over the, the next 10 years, the, our ability to test for even minute quantities of this stuff will improve. And uh, we've seen the, 
in the um, London 2012 games, which are, are now kind of prescribed, there were 40 or 50 different positive tests that came out of reanalysis of the, of the samples. And you don't know who they, who they are. You just have a sample number. But somewhere there's a, a master list for each sport and, and you can figure out who it is. So, And if you think about it, you know, you go back home, you're an Olympic hero, you get a job, you're married, you have kids. And then all of a sudden, somebody says this, this was all a lie. And, and that's a, a particularly devastating consequence for uh, anybody who's been picked up eight, 10 years after the fact. So it's, it's a deterrent of sorts. Does that long time frustrate you or are you relieved when someone is finally caught? Yeah, it would be nice if you could have instant gratification on these things, but, but you don't. And frankly, I think the, a, the, the, the person who deserved the medal does finally get it. And may well have known all along that an opponent was using stuff, but you can't prove it. But in the end, I'd rather have the outcome that I should have had at the time. It's too bad you're you're not on the podium waving you know your hand at the crowd. But the wheels of God grind slowly, but they grind exceeding fine. <laughs> Did you get any personal satisfaction when Lance Armstrong was finally caught, since he did attack you about this? Yeah, it's not satisfaction. It's just a, it's a sense that finally he's been exposed and he's he's actually personally acknowledged that he, he did use this stuff for, for through, through his entire professional career. It wasn't just a, a one-off thing. There's some satisfaction in that closure. And, you know, I mean, Lance had tried to get me kicked out of the WADA and kicked out of the IOC, and that was never going to happen. Speaking of getting kicked out, we have to talk about Russia when we are talking about doping. If it were up to you, what would happen to Russia? Just on the doping. We're not even going to talk about Ukraine. Uh, on the doping, I, I think you know you can certainly suspend where, where you find that the the state and state authorities are complicit in this altering records and stuff like that. Then I think that probably the best example is what the track and field has done. Say so, until you get that part of the act put together, why don't you watch this stuff on television and, and not be there? So, and I think that's, that's right. I, I'm less sanguine on sort of the geopolitical stuff like that because it's, it's sort of o- offensive to take things out on athletes who have no part in the war. They're not, didn't vote for it. They didn't serve in it. And you'd like to say, look, stuff happens out there in, in the real world, but we're kind of a, a subset of that it should be. We should encourage people to, to meet and, and compete against each other because the same way I learned in, in, in Rome that the, the Soviet athletes were not these dreadful curmudgeons that the propagandists would have you believe. It, it is an, an exchange and an educational process that is, I think has a, an enormous value. Going back to keeping the samples for 10 years, do you think there's ever a point where the IOC would reverse decisions about the swimming competitions at Montreal with the whole East German doping system? Because they did reverse the decision on Jim Thorpe. Yeah, but that, that was a different issue. I mean, he was that, that was the amateur rules that were arguing that had nothing to do with his sport performance. Uh, part of the, the, the problem with swimming in 1976, and we, we all knew, you know, in quotation marks, you, you can't prove. I mean, I, the Soviets had a ship in the Montreal Harbor. 
Polish flag, I think it was. And, and, and there was a, a couple of labs on that and the athletes would be taken down there the day or so before their event and tested. And if they were going to test positive, all of a sudden they got injured or were sick or something like that. And they put in somebody else. So there, there were never any positive tests. So the deal is the, the rules of the day said, if you compete and you get a medal or, or, and you're tested, if your test is not positive, that's it. You've won in accordance with the rules at the time. And I think by the time we got to Seoul or, or even after that, or WADA comes into existence in 1999, there's too much water under the bridge at that point to, to have a credible understanding. And, and you don't know who might not have been using this stuff. So it's not satisfactory, but those were the rules of the day. And you can't rewrite that as easily as you would like to think. How has it been for you, for WADA, to change the mindset of these federations where doping was just ingrained, when you talk about weightlifting, where you talk about cycling, where these sports that just think faster, higher, stronger is better at any expense, and so therefore doping is encouraged almost, or a blind eye is turned. How do you change that mindset? I think you you have to change, I think, the people you know, in, in the center chairs. And we used to you know, say, well, there's no doping in my sport. There probably is in your sport, but not, not in mine. And so it was just a mantra that they played. I remember when we started WADA, we got organized in the, at the end of 1999. And we wanted to be in the field first, early, early, early in 2000 to start testing in the lead up to the Sydney Games. We didn't even bother with the, the winter athletes. So let's get in the summer. And we found that out of, I think, 27 or 28 international federations whose sports are on the program of the summer games, did not even have rules that allowed them to test their athletes out of competition. And that, that was a blockbuster for me. I, said, I had no idea. But it certainly said, okay, now we know that there's a talk and there's a lot of talking the talk, but nobody's walking. And, and we've got to change that. So, so... We spent a good part of 2000 getting these federations to amend their rules so that the testing could occur. Because the silo for each sport is the International Federation. They're all, you've heard them, they wrap themselves in autonomy. And nowadays, I think you have to earn that. You don't just declare it as a divine right. And so if you're not walking the walk as well, you don't have any credibility. What should happen to Camilla Valieva? Well, that's that's a lot more complicated than, uh, especially with, with when the the CAS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, kind of fumbled the ball. I mean, basically, the rule is if you have a positive test, there's a provisional suspension. Boom, e- even before the second sample is analyzed and so on. The further layer of complexity for her is she was 15 at the time, so she's a minor. She said what's called a protected person. She was not somebody who marched up to the pharmacy door and kicked it open and said, give me some of this stuff. It's being provided to her by the entourage. And I think it was one of three different heart medicines that she was taking as a 15-year-old, you know. But the likelihood that she would um, actually be suspended, I think, is, is slight. But at the moment, it's, we've got to go through that process. That's another frustrating thing that we have in the, because when we were forming WADA, 
we know perfectly well that the huge majority of sports federations had zero interest in it. And in fact, you know, they, they rather like being kings in their own uh, fiefdom. So we, we had to be as non-threatening initially as possible. I mean, to the point where if we were going to assert a case against an athlete in name the sport, you couldn't actually assert that. You had to go to the International Federation and say, we think this athlete needs to be uh, sanctioned and we need you to engage your process to apply the, the consequences that we think are appropriate. Half of them didn't bother. They didn't care. Or they'd look at it and say, oh, no, that, no, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. And uh, now we've got a, a system that's a little better in the sense that we have a, what we call a compliance review committee, an independent committee within WADA that looks at things and decides whether or not there's a, a case to be answered. And now we can go to the International Sports Federation or the, the National Anti-Doping Organization and say, here are the consequences we think are appropriate in this circumstance. Are you going to impose them or not? If they say no, say boom, we go directly to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. You don't you don't have to convince the unwilling to do the unthinkable of actually following the rules. So we're getting better at that. We have a, a one that's I find particularly frustrating is there's a rule that says if you miss three tests in, in a space of I forget whether it's a year or eighteen months, that counts as a positive test. Now, quite often we have doping control officers that go to a, say a training camp where on the whereabouts list that each athlete has to provide, that athlete is at this place. They have to be available for, I think, one hour per day at that place so, so that they're available for testing. You know they're there, but they pull the blinds down and they crawl around below the, uh, the windowsill and they just don't answer the door. And I'd like to have something that says, all right, if you're a doping control officer, and you, you're pretty sure that is what's going on, that you can go to the, an official in, in, in WADA, let's say the director general of WADA, and say, we think this is going on. And what we want to be able to do is we went Monday and nobody answered the door. We need authorization to go Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And if you get three missed tests, even in the same week, there's your positive test. And, and, Right now, it takes a matter of months before you, you report and somebody looks at the report and, and uh, says, okay, yes, that's a missed test. Then you have to advise the athlete that, that he or she has missed a test and that if it happens twice more in the, whatever the remaining period of time is, that it counts. It's all too bureaucratic. It's not nimble enough to catch people who are, who are clearly abusing the system. And Changing mindsets, WADA forms in 1999, 2000, Sydney, we have Marion Jones. How did her case change, or did it change, how federations thought about doping and WADA coming on the scene? Well, I, my understanding, and I, I may be wrong, is I, I don't think she tested positive. I think she acknowledged uh, that she did this as, as part of the criminal proceedings that she got mixed up in. And then the fellow from Valco, Valco rather, his name escapes me just at the moment, said, I sat beside her and watched her inject this substance. Yeah. So you have a, you don't need a positive test there because you've got a, assume you've got a credible witness who, who saw it. And that's even more satisfying. So, so I, I forget which stuff she was taking. If they were the designer drugs, the Valco drugs, they're probably in 2000. 
was not a test at that stage. That came along a little bit later. How did you have time for all of this? You're a lawyer, IOC member, trying to get WADA off the ground. How did you do it? Well, most of the stuff I've done, I've enjoyed. Uh, you know, I didn't enjoy the Salt Lake City investigation very much because you're you're dealing with colleagues. But if we didn't do it, somebody else would have. And the IOC was under a huge attack. But anyway, basically, I, I found that if I got to the office by 8 o'clock Eastern, the people in Lausanne are coming back from lunch. So you've got basically half a day you can deal with them. And if you stay till 8 o'clock at night, long after they've gone to bed, if you've got games in Seoul or anywhere in Asia or Australia, uh, you can get them as they're coming in in the morning. And I, I work fairly quickly. I, I don't find writing is difficult. You know, there's some, some people, you put them in front of a keyboard and a blank screen, it's like they're paralyzed. They can't push the first uh, button. So, and, and I, it was actually energizing to you know when the phone rang, I didn't know whether it was a Somebody with a tax problem, an Olympic problem, and something at McGill University where I was a governor and chancellor and so on, or a water problem, whatever. So changing, changing gears like that is absolutely the opposite of sort of sitting in front of a trustee and working your way through paragraph 3,411, 3,412. Anyway, so that's kind of what it is. And my family puts up with it. So it's uh, it's generally been a lot of fun. And, and as I said, it's having having had these wonderful sport experiences, if I can help somebody else have as much fun as I did, I'm certainly prepared to work to see if that can be made to happen. Were you ever at a table with the North Koreans or on some jet to Tokyo and say, how is this my life? How did this happen to me? Uh, no, no. I, I mean, I, I've enjoyed that. And, and, and basically, and, and maybe this is a side benefit of from having understood that, that you, you don't start training for an Olympic final the week before. There's a quotation I have on the inside of a little container on my desk that says, the only place where success comes before work is in the dictionary. And so I think athletes understand uh, that. You understand that uh, it's like racket sports. Basically, the backswing is really important. Uh, you know, you don't think so, but that sets up the whole movement at whatever ball you're trying to hit. So you do the preparation. It's like, what do they say? that In order to become really good at something, you have to have 10,000 hours of previous practice and so on. That just goes with the territory. And, it, and it's fun to see how good can you be. First, you, you, you know, I, I tried to get across the across the pool, not the length of the pool, without drowning. And fear was mistaken for talent, so I ended up on the swimming team and doing lengths. But I spent my whole life trying to get from one end of the pool to the other as fast as I could. How do you think the Olympic movement is positioned now? You're now an honorary member. So when you look back at how much the Olympics have changed in your time there, where do you see them going forward? Well, I think basically under Samaranch, we, we kind of moved from an organization that would, in, in the old description, used to be a kitchen table operation. So we moved from a kitchen table to the boardroom. We uh, finally understood how important television was going to be. I mean, we, we knew that it was new and exciting, but the first Olympics on television were not commercial television, were really not until 1960. But the IOC was so 
risk adverse. That it, it said, oh no, there could be liability here. So we used to have the television rights negotiated by the organizing committees. Now, the organizing committees care about one thing only, that's their games. They don't care what happened before. They don't care what the next games are all about. And so we said, look, I remember I was sitting at my desk in, in Montreal. The phone rang and it was Juan Antonio Samaranch. He said, Deke, I was Deke, said, you're the chairman of our television negotiations committee. And I said, we don't have a television negotiations committee. He said, we do now. And you're the chairman. I said, but I don't know anything about television. He said, none of us do. But we've got to learn because it's it's by far the most valuable asset that we possess. And so I started, uh, the first negotiation I did was at, at just before Sarajevo for the Calgary Games in, in 1988. And remember, we had a, the organizing committees were not happy about the IOC stepping into this. And Calgary was not happy, probably in addition to the fact that I was a Canadian. And they said uh, we had to do a step process. We, the first time we, we negotiated, we would negotiate jointly with the organizing committee, which meant that you had to, you both had to agree on the, the amount and the place and the time and so forth. And we had figured out that the U.S. networks, which were the, the bellwether networks for us, were selling the, the Sarajevo games as Miracle on Ice to Lake Placid all over again. And we're saying, the United States is going to get killed. I mean, it was a fluke in, in Lake Placid. And the rest of the team is not very good uh, as well. We should negotiate beforehand, before anyone knows that what, what a, a downer Sarajevo is likely to be. And Calgary said, oh, no, our... our consultants who were kind of anal retentive, I think, said, no, no, the longer you wait, hold on to this, the, the more valuable the rights become. And we said, no, no, it's, it's absolutely the reverse. No, well, that's that's what we're... So I said, well, all right, tell me this. How much do your consultants say you're going to get? So they said $200 million, which is twice as much as the previous games. I said, okay, you guarantee us our share of $200 million you can have the negotiations whenever you want. Oh, well, no, the hands were started to ring. Oh, we're just a little organizing committee. We can't afford to take that financial risk. I say, sorry, folks, you can't have it both ways. We're offering you, you've told us what your consultants say you're going to get. If you trust them, it's rock solid. But if you don't wish to do that, then you've got to negotiate when we say. So there's lots of rug scuffing and thing, And they finally said, all right, no, no. We can't afford to take the risk. So, so we no negotiated just before Sarajevo, and we got $309 million. So the whining dropped off fairly significantly. And, and I remember saying, listen, when you get back home, hire a young lawyer and have that young lawyer do nothing except read that contract every single day because the networks have probably overpaid and therefore they'll be looking for whatever loopholes they can find. Anyway, it proved to be the difference between very financially successful games and what would have been been less so. So that was all part of helping to create an Olympic brand. What is the Olympic brand? And, and we did a lot of focus groups and so on. And oddly enough, it was not a world record, gold medal, things like that. It was, it was the softer stuff. It's youth. It's international. It's striving. It's, it's friendly. It's rules-based. There's an ethical base to it. And that turned out to be the Olympic brand. So we were able to go to broadcasters, of course, but then I had another call a couple of years after the one I, I mentioned from Samurai saying, Deke, you're now the chairman of the IOC Marketing Commission. 
I said, I, I don't know anything about marketing. He said, well, we've got all our eggs in the television basket. We've got to broaden our revenue sources. So, And what we found in, in sponsorships and things like that is, is that people with well-known trademarks, Coca-Cola, Visa, Kodak in the day, and, and so on, were looking to align their commercial brands with something that, that had more of an emotional and, and ethical and, and so on connection. And the Olympics was a, a wonderful fit for us and for them. And so we've now got a, a program in place that generates more than a billion dollars for every um, edition of the, of the Olympic Games. And, and that's been a huge success, very loyal supporters. Some of them have been with us since the very beginning. And the result is that we've, we know what the brand is, and that helps not only the sponsors with whom we become aligned, it also keeps us from making mistakes. We don't do sponsorships with tobacco companies. We don't do deals with companies that don't at least share the values that we think are important in the Olympic movement. What is it like as a member to have a games in your country? And what are other IOC members like when the games are in their country? Well, you're, you're, you're both proud that your country has been selected and sort of the, the, the recognition of your ability to do things. And you're nervous. Uh, you know, I remember in, in Sydney, you may have recall it, where Kathy Freeman is on this torch going up and it all of a sudden goes, stops. I think, the, you know, the blood pressure of my Australian colleagues probably went up to 300 over 290 for two minutes or whatever it was. It's a long time when, when something like that goes wrong. So it can happen. We had, you know, we had the, in Vancouver, we had, you remember the, the erectile dysfunction of our uh, part of the um, torch assembly. So uh, that sort of thing is kind of scary when uh, when it does go wrong. But it's also when everybody's gone home and you say, well, we did it. Isn't that wonderful? When are the next ones we can bid for? Speaking of bidding, who should have 2030? Yeah, I, I, I think we so far we have, our governments have fumbled that ball. And uh, they say, oh, it's going to going to cost X billions. It's not going to cost billions of dollars. You got most of the stuff is, is already in place. And then people take that horror story out of Sochi and say, oh, well, it's going to cost $50 billion. To, that's arrant nonsense. And, and people should be pointing that out. But no, I think the IOC would love to, to come back to Vancouver again for a variety of reasons, one of which is the, the organizational capacity. And the fact that it's it's pretty reliable weather these days, you know, we're looking, the whole climate change is, is affecting where we're likely to be holding winter games. And there are some places where, frankly, it's too hot to hold the summer games in the normal period. So these are issues that we've, we have recognized that we're trying to address and which has really led to the, the discussion format of dealing with possible candidates to say, you know, how can we make this good for you and your country as, as well as good for the Olympic movement? And so we've had a, a pretty good start, in a sense, with Paris and Los Angeles. Under the, the full new system, we have Brisbane in place, and we're kicking the tires, still kicking the tires with respect to uh, 2030. So I think that the, I mean, the, the product is still very attractive. The economics are... are attractive, especially when you get people to realize that it's like in Montreal. They say, well, stadium cost a billion dollars. That's more than all the covered stadium 
North America put together at the time. Okay, but it's it's here. Here we are, forty years later, and it's still in use. And many we've actually done some research and published it. You may have seen it of the the current use of former Olympic venues, and an astonishing percentage. I mean, sort of well north of ninety are still in use years and years after the game. So the costs should be regarded more as an investment and not the cost of the the opening party, which was the uh, the games. What are you proudest of in on your work? What are you proudest of what you've accomplished? Well, it's funny. I, I, I don't really spend much time looking back, you know, other, other than to make sure you don't make the same mistakes again. And it's not... It's not a satisfaction quotient that, that I think of. I, I think in every organization with which I've been involved, I, I'd like to think I left it a little better than it was when I arrived. And, and so I think the Olympics is probably an example of that. Thank you so much, Dick. If you haven't heard part one of our interview, don't miss it. It is last week's episode, episode 270. That sound means it is time for our history moment, and all year long we are talking Seoul 1988 as it is the 35th anniversary of those games. Allison, it is your turn for a story. What do you got for me? And you're going to be a little upset that I took this story from you. It is your official song. <laughs> it was Actually, I'm not, because I did listen to the official song to get to end, and oh boy. It's a doozy. It is a doozy. And it was kind of what you would expect of the time. It was called Hand in Hand. It was performed by Coriana, which I don't quite know how to explain it. It's sort of like the South Korean ABBA if they worked at Branson, Missouri. (laughs) So they did perform this song at the opening ceremonies. And talk about a doozy. This portion of the ceremony had Coriana on a round stage in the center, just completely surrounded by circles and circles and circles of performers. There were square dancers, there were stilt walkers, there were folk dancers, multiple dancing mascots, kind of the dime store version of all the historic mascots throughout the Olympics. They had people dressed as flowers. And of course, you had an entire cadre of children singing and waving colored frisbees. Can't have an opening ceremony without singing children. Let me share some of the lyrics of Hand in Hand with you. Hand in hand we stand all across the land. We can make this world a better place in which to live. Hand in hand we can start to understand breaking down the walls that come between us for all time. I mean, that is Shakespeare quality sonnets there. Well, I can tell you why we don't remember this song. Well, <laughs> that would be my response. A little bit of a surprise that we don't remember the song because it was produced by Giorgio Moroder, the father of disco, the creator of Donna Summer's entire disco career, also the producer and Oscar winner for Take My Breath Away from the original Top Gun and Flashdance, What a Feeling. Wow. R.I.P. Irene Cara. Hand in hand, not his best work. We'll have a link to the video from the opening ceremonies in the show notes. Please go watch it because just to see the children in the Frisbees and the sheer number of performers that they got on that field 
to sing the chorus with Coriana is impressive. Well, okay. So I would say watch the video to see the square dancing because you go, why is there square dancing in this thing? Because it's and hand then you see the, in hand. They're doing the hand in hand. I got that. And then, then you saw the other cultural performers. And, and then you're like, wait a second. Is that Sam the Eagle up there? And there's just so much amazing things to wonder at with this song. You can rewatch it a dozen times and still catch a new thing. Welcome to Shukflistan. Now, it is the part of the show where we check in with our past guests who make up our team Keep the Flame Alive. These are citizens of our very own country, Shukflistan. First up, Shannon Galia has qualified for the 2023 ISBF World Championships in St. Moritz. This will be Malta's first sled in the Skeleton World Championship. So yay, Shannon, for reaching that milestone. Evan Dumphy was nominated for Sport British Columbia Senior Male Athlete of the Year for the third time in his career, and the awards will be announced on March 9th. Modern pentathlete Joe Muir has retired from competition, so congratulations to you, Joe, and good luck. We're looking forward to seeing what you do next. And competing this weekend, Nordic Combined Athlete Annika Malasinski will be in Seffeld, Austria. Peacock will be streaming some of her competition live on Friday, January 27th at 8.15 a.m. Eastern and on Saturday, January 28th at 2.45 a.m. Eastern. Karateka Tom Scott will be competing at the Karate One Premier League event in Cairo, Egypt. He is going in ranked second in his category. So good luck to you, Tom. Beach volleyball player Kelly Chang and her partner Sarah Hughes are one of the 10 teams that will be playing in the finals of the Beach Volleyball Pro Tour 2022 this weekend. And figure skater Nate Bartholomew and his partner Katie McBeath are competing in the U.S. Championships this weekend. And I just want to mention that Jackie Wong on rockerskating.com has some fantastic previews for both the U.S. Championships and the Europeans, which are both this weekend. So if figure skating is your thing, you will see who his medal contenders are. We would like to give a shout out to all of our patrons and supporters. You are the ones who keep our flame alive in many ways, not just monetarily with either a one-time donation or a standing donation through Patreon. Those of you who are part of our Facebook group, who talk about the show on social media, who share the show with our friends, we appreciate all of that support as well. If you get some kind of positive benefit from listening to this show, please consider giving back. You can do so at flamealivepod.com slash support. Haven't heard that in a while. No, we have some Tokyo 2020 news. So remember Christina Simonuskaya, the Belarusian sprinter who criticized her coaches because they entered her in the 4x400 relay without telling her. And then because she criticized them, they sent her home. I, remember that story? I do remember the story. And it, it, it was a big story at the time. Like what's happening to Christina? Right, because she did not go back to Belarus. She got asylum in Poland because she was afraid to go home for fear that she would be imprisoned or have some kind of negative repercussion 
on her at, at some point. Well, the Athletics Integrity Unit has charged one of her coaches, Yuri Maisevich, with breaking rules in athletics integrity code in the Athletics Integrity Code of Conduct involving honesty, dignity, and protecting reputation. The Associated Press was reporting this and they said no further details about what that meant or what it entails were available. But something is happening on that front. Do we know if she is still not in Belarus? I assume she's not. I do not know, okay. but I, I would assume she's not in Belarus either. This first piece is absolutely for me because I haven't registered yet. <laughs> Yeah, if you're registering for the ticket lottery, time is running out to sign up for the first wave. You have until January 31st. So go to tickets.paris2024.org to find out more. Uh, if you don't get in the draw, there will be other opportunities for tickets, though. So don't worry if you're not necessarily in this first round. Guess what? We've got construction issues. Nothing fell down, thankfully. No, that is true. Sylvie Corbett from the Associated Press writes that the construction on the arena for badminton, rhythmic gymnastics, and some Paralympic sports is facing delays because the steel in the building is supposed to come from Ukraine and they can't get it because production of steel in Ukraine just plummeted due to the war. So now they are trying to source it from elsewhere in Europe, but it's pushing back the completion of the building by several months. And it was supposed to be that finished the summer, but probably won't be done until early 2024. Which means we won't be able to have test events probably in some of those arenas, but now we're not having test events for equestrian for a different reason. Right. Specifically in eventing, they are not going to hold a test event for the eventing discipline in an effort to cut costs. This is reported in Inside the Games. They have said the eventing competition is slated to take place at Versailles and the Equestrian International Federation instead plans to use existing events in Fontainebleau in April of this year and next year to coordinate the teams and the workforce because the, the grounds at Fontainebleau blue are similar to Versailles, they said. And then once they'll have good solid walkthroughs through Versailles to check it out closer to the games, but no big test event. I'm not even going to say it. Gosh, this show is all about the budget, apparently, because guess what? Milan Cortina, problems with the skating venue. So this is the speed skating venue, and the original proposal was going to be to put a roof on an outdoor track at Basella de Pine. The initial budget to do that was 50 million euros, and actual costs have gone up at least 50%. So now the IOC says, hey, you underestimated that investment, and this is not sustainable to spend this much money for this particular area. So now speed skating could move to Torino, where they've still got the building from Torino 2006, but they have taken the ice infrastructure out of that oval, and it could cost about 15 million euros to be reinstated. What the heck are they using the oval for? If they took the ice out, is it just an oval building? I don't know. Maybe they're just using it as like a functional center, multi-purpose. Maybe they said, oh, if we take the ice out, we can use it for all sorts of things. Instead of maybe like learning how to lay floor over the ice, a la any 
basketball and hockey arena in the U.S. and use it that way. Though so 15 that, million is a lot less than 75 million euros. Oh, oh, definitely. But why didn't he, they, why they didn't come up with that option in the first place, I don't know. Well, because it's and, already so spread out and now you're going to have another city involved, a whole other, what are they going to do with the athletes? Are they going to have to create another Olympic village or rent out a hotel or what's going to happen to them? That's a good question. I don't know. That news is from the AP and the Sports Examiner. We talked a little bit in our Facebook group about the fact that the winter Universade just took place at Lake Placid. And of course, they had the speed skating outside and how cool it was to have the speed skating outside. Could we do that again? But we know from our Albertville stories that the ISU is not a fan of outdoor arenas anymore because it is so difficult to maintain the temperature because in Albertville, they were skating through water, but you, basically. You know what else isn't cool? Spending 75 million euros on a roof. The other thing about the 75 million euro roof is it goes along with a who knows how expensive sliding track that is still being bantered about. And we don't know what's going to happen with that. That's going to end up in San Moritz. I how, would not be surprised. How could Although it not? I, but ap apparently the track in Torino, which wasn't used it's now being used for practice again okay so, so now we're going to end up with the third olympic village in torino could be who knows but there's only two of us we had already decided who was going where and now they're moving all these things <laughs> to a third city <laughs> it's gonna be tough we're gonna spend a lot of time on trains that's what i think at least it'll be pretty <laughs> that's very true all right. Well, that will do it for this week. Let us know your favorite moments from Dick Pound's time with the IOC. You can email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Our social handle is at flamealivepod. And be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. And don't forget to get our weekly newsletter filled with other fun stories about this week's episode, which I have to get done today. Sign up at flamealivepod.com. Yes. And I do have some other Dick Pound stories I'm going to throw in there. Oh, I'm so excited to see those. All right. Next week, we will have our movie club. Film buff Fran will be back to talk about the French movie Japalou which is about the show jumping horse who captured gold at Seoul 1988. What do we think of the French biopic? You'll have to tune in to find out. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Hand in hand we stand.